Well, good morning. Welcome to the Springs. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. Uh, I serve as the lead pastor of this beautiful church, and its beauty is partly your fault. So uh, I have a special message today that I pray is fitting and worthy of the amazing weekend we celebrate, MLK weekend. I have a message entitled, Loving the World. Loving the World. Now, my beautiful wife, Elisa, and I, uh, going on 11 years now, um, we just went to a movie last week uh, called Hidden Figures. We went to the theater. Uh, Hidden Figures. It's an amazing movie about a few instrumental black women that were instrumental in the space race, but at the time were completely overlooked. Uh, they, these women were very passionate about loving the world that God had placed them in, and they were also very passionate about changing it. In fact, there was one scene that stuck out to me in this, this film where Dorothy, one of these amazing mathematicians, which it's a good movie if you can make math super exciting, right? She is riding on a public bus with her three sons, and they are relegated to the back of the bus with a section that's labeled colored. And she says to her sons something extremely poignant. She says, sons, just because it's the way it is doesn't mean it's right. Just because it's the way it is doesn't mean it's right. As I open the Bible, in John's first letter to the church, he draws a really similar, similar contrast between the way things are and the way things ought to be. In fact, he basically says here that we're going to read that you can't be right or righteous in the world by loving all the things the way they are in the world. Can you stand to your feet to honor God's word, please? We're going to read 1 John chapter 2. We'll start with verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world. Now I'll explain why that might be confusing in a message entitled Loving the World, but we'll, we'll talk. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. God's word. Thank you. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord, please add a blessing to the reading of your word. Give me grace to preach in a manner worthy of it. That we could be released to love as you love. In a redemptive way. For such a time as this. Amen. John 3.16. The same guy that walked with Jesus and later wrote what I just read to you. He writes... Uh, what I think are his thoughts about the way Jesus conducted himself. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave 
his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So, so John says, God loves the world. And then, and then you get to his letter that we were just reading right before what we just read. It says in verse 10 of chapter 2, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. So love is good, okay? God loves. We should love our brother. Go to chapter 3 of the same letter. He says, this is the message that we've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Down, Down to verse 14, that we know that we have passed out of death and into light because we love the brothers. So I'm thinking God loves, we should love too. Good thing, right? But in the middle of all this is what we just read. Do not love the world or the things in the world. My silly little mind is thinking like, what what about the people in the world? That's kind of in the world, right? There's a strong, seemingly averse messages here. I mean, how do you reconcile all these verses? It seems like there's two different messages happening, at least. Well, maybe there's not. Maybe loving the world the way God loves the world means not loving the prevailing world systems that stand against God. Or, or to put it another way, just because things are the way they are doesn't mean they're right. Like Dorothy said on the bus. See, in order to truly love in the world the way God loves, you have to be somewhat unaccepting of some of the things in the world and some of the ways things are. You have to be intolerant of some things, in other words. And yet, what things? You see, most of us, including myself, if not all of us, are so entrenched by world systems and ideologies and things that distinguishing what the things of the world and what the things of God are is really difficult for all of us. Now, most of us understand how it's difficult for that guy, right? Especially when he keeps posting that stuff on Facebook. But look, distinguishing world systems we're commanded not to love versus the world that we ought to love the way the God, that God loves is extremely difficult. How do we sort it out? In fact, let me just ask a question that really serves to verify my point. When I mention the systems of the world that are opposed to God, just think, what are the things that come to your mind? Like, like if you were to label it in this label-free generation that we live in, let's go on and label. If we were to label, okay, what are the systems in the world that are against God? Don't say it out loud, but just label that thing that comes to your mind. And the fact that we're all thinking very different things, and if I were to have you say it out loud, opposing things serves my point. See, here's the thing. According to John, I'm guessing that none of the things we just thought of are the things that he declares are world systems that stand in opposition to God. Because the systems that that oppose God fundamentally aren't external things in the world. They're systems of sin that are internal to all of us. And for us 
to really have an impact in going from being instruments to bring God's redemptive love, changing things from the way they are to how they ought to be in God's eyes, we have to allow God to do a little internal investigation in all of us. You see, it would be easy to say that it's all those external things. It's the humanist professors. Those are the world systems opposing God. Or it's the liberal politicians. Or the conservative politicians. Or it's, it's cops. Or it's protesters. Or it's the, the pride rally crusaders. Or the, the pride rally haters. It's, it's easy to point out external things and think, okay, those are the systems. But what about the systems at work inside of all of our hearts that make it difficult, if not impossible, to address those things because there's so much controlling inside of us that are opposed to God. That's what John talks about here in this letter. And that's why we did need to dig deep into this passage and see what God has to say about it. If we're going to go from loving the world the way the devil loves the world to loving the world the way that God loves the world and receiving his love and being vessels of it, At the end of this message, I'm going to give you a a kind of an embarrassing story about my failure to do this in the past and a a takeaway for how we can be redemptive in the world out there. But most of this message, I want to dig into this passage and really see if you can dare to investigate things in your heart, systems of thinking in your heart that are opposed to God's word so that we can be used by God in a more redemptive way in the world that we live in. You see, the best thing that we can do for the world out there is to be driven by an out-of-this-world love and holiness that only comes from the Holy Spirit when we seek more and more of Jesus in his word. That's the best use we can be in the world around us. So that's why I want to dig into this passage just a little more. Verse 15, we ready? Y'all going with me here? I get nervous when folk don't talk back to me a little bit, all right? (laughs) Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, John is warning against the devotion again to the world systems, but he's not demonizing the created order, the world itself in its entirety, It's just the the things that that are inside of us that tend to to lend ourselves to to thinking that that creation is more powerful than creator, that the gift of life and the gift of what he gives us in the world is higher in higher order than the giver of life. It's a subtle thing that we all do. And and, uh, one of my favorite quotes, one of the, uh, the men who've preached on this verse, John Piper is a pastor in Minnesota. He says, Love for God pushes out love for the world. And love for the world pushes out love for God. So when there is a system opposed to loving God in the world, we don't demonize the world at large. We, We say, how can we love God in the world? And any other desires that we might have in the world would be subjugated. They would be pushed aside. That they would be displaced. Verse 16 gets real specific with how to do that. Be careful because specific often leads to real personal if you allow it. 
for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So let's take those, those one at a time. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. I want to spend some time on these three things. First of all, the de- desires of the flesh. Dean Knazes is an ultra-marathoner, uh, which means that he runs marathons for his warm-up and then keeps going. Uh, he's verifiably insane, in my opinion. But he says this. He says, Western culture has things a little backwards right now. We think that if we had every comfort available, available to us, we'd be happy. We equate comfort with happiness. And now we're so comfortable, we're miserable. There's no struggle in our lives, no sense of adventure. We get in a car, we get in an elevator, it all comes easy. What I've found is that I'm never more alive than when I'm pushing and I'm in pain. And I'm struggling for higher achievement. And in that struggle, there's a magic. We're going to have a sign up for an ultra No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> See, he's, he's on to something. Do you know that the Bible doesn't demonize the flesh? Flesh isn't bad. That's Plato that says that the flesh is all bad. It's when the desires of the flesh override the other desires that God has put inside us to aspire to. And God has this amazing way of providentially allowing us to sort out those desires. And Dean here is is onto something. God ordains struggle in our life. You know, it's fundamentally not the devil opposing you because God's got him under his thumb too. God ordains struggles in our life so that our fleshly desires would be overridden regularly by greater desires that God wants to put inside of us so that we would live very Christ-centered, unwasted, historical lives. And not just be normal, comfortable Westerners. We uh, just finished a a week of fasting and prayer. And many of us partook in it in various ways. But one of the things that I love about fasting is fasting at least serves as an implicit reminder that uh, my flesh ought to not tell the rest of me what I need, essentially. I need to tell my flesh what it needs more than anything. Sounds a little schizophrenic, but you know, God made us tripartite. We're body, soul, and spirit. So I, as a, a spirit redeemed by Jesus, need to tell the rest of me, my mind, my will, my emotions, and my stomach, and everything else that screams at me all day, I need to tell it who's boss. Jesus is boss. The Holy Spirit abides in here. And periodically, I have to remind you of that. That's what I love, at least, about fasting. Now, as a, as a means of, uh, of uh, that's, that's a spiritual principle, not a nutritional one, because uh, nutritionally, of course, we need to get in touch with hearing what our body says about what we need to eat. That's a separate thing. Our desires in our spirit 
need to inform the rest of everything else and sometimes struggle, uh, maybe planned struggle through fasting or other struggles that are planned by God in your life need to inform you and serve to inform you what's the greater desire. So I have a question and I have a challenge for you in regards to the desires of the flesh. You ready for this? Yeah? Ready for Someone's ready? I, I saw a nod there. What is a discomfort in your life right now? Think about this. Right now that instead of abruptly trying to escape from it, you, you can embrace it as a gift from God. What's one particular thing maybe that you're trying to get away from? A discomfort in your life, a struggle in your life, a pain in your life that instead of just trying to run away from it, you can embrace it as a gift from God and say, instead of just trying to get through this, can I say, God, how can this be used to buffet my flesh, to, to control my flesh, and to glorify you? And yes, God, heal me. Yes, God, strengthen me. But God, don't let any of this pain be wasted. Strengthen me in this. We all love being strong, but being strengthened is a distinct thing. What is one thing in your life? And here's my challenge. Embrace it. Enjoy it. And even many of you who just went through a week of fasting, maybe schedule some more. Schedule some more planned discomfort so that you're used to God's planned discomfort when it periodically and regularly arises. Maybe you fasted a week, fast a day, every week. Do something that reminds your flesh that there's greater desires abiding here. The desires of the flesh. Number two, the desires of the eyes. Now, we can correlate the desires of the eyes with this whole uh, the, the coveting issue. The 10th commandment in Deuteronomy and Exodus is, thou shalt not covet what belongs to another. And so when we talk about the desires of the eyes, the easy application for me is uh, men, when we tend to, to look at women inappropriately. But the coveting with the eyes is something that all of us do. When we see what someone else has and we tend to covet or en- envy it, it's, we covet things like cars or kitchens uh, or shoes, right? Or we covet other areas. We covet relationships. Or we covet the circumstances in another person's life. Or their career progression. Here's the issue with coveting with the eyes. Or the, 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 the desires of the eyes. Or the versions say the lust of the eyes. The issue is, is it's really difficult to be present with God. If my eyes are way over there on what that other person has. Wherever you are, be there. Chronologically, with time, if you're so in the future that you can't be in the present, uh, uh, maybe geographically, where you are, wherever you are, be there. And with your eyes, look to Jesus to help you be present where you are. If you're like me, this, this might... This uh, desire of the, the eyes can sometimes uh, have this, this weird uh, uh, positive spin to it. Like, uh, I'm being altruistic because I want to make an impact in the world, but I subtly think things like, if only I had the resources that pastor had, or if only I had the things or the giftings that person has, 
I could have more impact for Jesus, right? It's all about Jesus, I tell myself. No, it's lusting with your eyes. And it's hard to be present where I am when I'm looking at something else with my eyes. And here's the thing. God doesn't want you to have what another person has. He wants you to have him where you are with what you have. Because he's designed you to make an impact that that other person couldn't make. But you're so stuck like me so often. Somewhere else instead of being right where you are and inviting God right there into your struggle and to seeing what he's given you. I'm preaching so good because I'm also preaching to myself, all right? So be all right with this. Another question and another challenge. Question is, in what specific ways can you turn from seeing what someone else has to setting your eyes on what God's given you? In, in other words, what, what one area do you need to just be present? Where God has placed you, with whom and with the things that he's given you. And my challenge is in line with, with the same thing, that in order to be present where God's placed you with the people he's placed you with, what's one maybe little daily habit that you can turn and, and just decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this one thing differently. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll set in motion other habits where I can be present with the Lord. Can I get ridiculously personal just to help you apply this? For some of us, it's just like, okay, I'm not going to take my phone into the bathroom now. The, the bathroom's my, the water closet is my new prayer closet. At least. Start there. Start somewhere. How can you be present where God has placed you and set your eyes on Jesus where you are and not be somewhere else? Because when you're present where you are and you look to God where you are, then it overrides the lust of the eyes, the, the lust or the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and finally the pride of life. The pride of life. Um, I did some research, and I, I found out that the pride of life was an issue before social media. I, I researched that, I swear. It, it, apparently, people were prideful and were self-experts uh, self, uh, on everything, before they could pu- publish it all about how amazing they were on social media. And all their opinions about the way the world ought to be. But I, I think social media has obviously given the pride of life a, a greater platform, right? There's not a whole lot of humility that we see. And I think the pride of life is, is expounded and it's expanded by just more opportunities to communicate it. But let's, let's, let's see what pride is. The opposite of pride is, anyone? Humility. Here's what I used to think wrongly about humility. I used to think pride is a high view of myself and humility is a low view of myself. So I'd beat myself down thinking I was being humble. No, that's backwards. Pride is a view of the world where I am at the center of the world. Whereas humility only comes from seeing God at the center and therefore what he, who he is and what he says about me is more fundamental than anything else that I would feel or think. And therefore it changes my opinions about the world around me because I'm not at the center of the world any longer. That's humility. It's an accurate view of yourself 
in light of God being God and you not being God. I have a question and a challenge with this one. If humility is an accurate view of yourself based on who God is and what he said about you, what has God said about you? What has he spoken to you about who you are in his word as you've read the Bible? Whether you've read a chapter of the Bible in your whole life or uh, you've read the whole Bible. What has God said about you in his word? What, what has he said through godly affirmation of godly friends? Uh, through prophetic encouragement? Uh, what has God spoken to you as you pray? What have you written down in your prayer journal? What has God said about you? Who are you according to him? And here's my challenge to grow in this. If you are not yet committed to a growth group, which is a, a group of people that, that also meet regularly, we're going to start meeting again. I'll, I'll announce that we're going to meet again starting this week. My challenge to you is to be a part, decide, I'm going to be a part of a growth group. It's in growth groups, in that mutual setting where we're focused on God and his word, and then we pray for one another, that we get that mutual peer affirmation that allows that definition and that affirmation to be in its place. Left alone to myself, I'm self-condemning, the wrong kind of humility. I'm I'm, uh, self-exalting, pride of life. My challenge to you is to be a part of people that can examine you, challenge you, uh, help confront you with sin. That's my challenge. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, The desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Don't miss the correlation between loving God and actually doing his will. That's how we know that our action, our life, our our benefit to the world is not from the world, but it's unto the world from the Father of lights. Now, I promised you that I would give you a little bit of a takeaway that involved uh, a story, and I'm going to get to that. But let me remind you, this message is about the world, and it's about you. This message is about how to make an impact in the world, Because it's about how to allow God to impact your heart. I think we have such a a poor filter for even diagnosing what's wrong in the world anyway. Because we struggle to diagnose what's wrong in here. So it's hard to see what's wrong out there. And when we're in our echo chambers of social media and we see and we... It's hard to see that because there's something wrong in here. I want to give you an example, and I'm going to warn you, this has a political element to my past that's pretty embarrassing, so I need you to just bear with me and love me. I grew up in, uh, in Oregon, uh, which I, I've said before, it's the heart of Caucasia, where we measure diversity by the different colors of Subarus driving around town. 
and I was just a typical non-religious kid. You know, my religion was baseball, essentially. And, uh, you know, I, I was a CEO Christian, you know, Christmas, Easter only. Um, that's someone else's joke, but I just took it from me. I, uh, I wasn't convicted by God. I, the, these worldly desires defined and drove who I was. And I saw the world uh, just through a typical Oregon lens until my friends reached out to me and I became a Christian. And, and all of a sudden, my, I'm changed from the inside out and I'm trying to work out some of my feelings. And so I went from being a, a super, on the political, as I got to my political views, I went from being super liberal, typical Oregon guy to like, okay, whatever conservative Republicans say, I'm supposed to believe that that's what I'm supposed to believe, unexamined by the Bible, which is not good. If you believe some liberal things or conservative things, that's okay as long as it's examined by the word of God, okay? I'm going to try to keep my political stuff right in that zone, all right? So help me. I get to college, and I go to school at Texas State. And I had my first black friend, that handsome man back there. Give, give everyone a wave. He's helping watch the door. That's Barrick Neely. He, played, he was a star athlete here at, at Texas State. And uh, you know, I taught him everything he knows, of course. <laughs> and he and I were roommates. We, we became a part of the same uh, Bible study, which became a campus ministry, which is now our church. Uh, and at the time, it was a clashing of cultures. And I'll tell you this one moment in uh, October of 2004. This is the embarrassing part, all right? So... I go up to Barrick, we had a moment, I figure, I figure this is a good time to make sure he's, he's with God on the election upcoming, right? I'm like, Barrick, you're going to vote for Bush, right? He is, he is God's man, obviously. And he says, no. I, I could not, I was incredulous. Why not? <laughs> he said, Peter? Black people vote for Democrats. <laughs> now, I wish I could stop there and say, both of us had some good conversation that we should have had so that we had better Bible-informed views. But I went on, and I said, Beric, you're not black. You're a Christian. Oh, that hurt to say it. (laughs) My name's Peter, and I'm a recovering whatever. (laughs) Now, check this out. I think there's valid reasons to have staunch conservative views about many things or uh, compassionate views on the left about many things. And there's good place to discuss those things in the church. How do we do it? How do we dream together and not just come to the middle, but come above the right and the left? There's good reason to have good, healthy discussion. But what was limiting me at that point from having a better answer to his him? Was it just I was ignorant? Well, I was ignorant. Was I just uninformed? Were there essentially fundamentally things I needed to learn? No. It was the pride of life. 
that I didn't see. It was all up in my system. It was all up in all of our system. It prevented me from seeing the world as it was to how God was going to make it as it ought to be. And it wasn't a problem just with the world the way it was. It was a problem with me. And as you look at the world, and we're going to welcome a new president on Friday, and we're going to pray for him as a church, and we're going to believe for change in the world, and we're going to see all the things that aren't the way they are and prophetically speak to the way the things ought to be. And we're going to have our different filters, but what we're going to surrender fundamentally to God is our worldly desires that prevent us from seeing the way God sees. So my challenge to you is you need to love the world the way God loves the world with his desires, not your own. That's my challenge. The only problem with that is is you can't do that without help from Jesus. Here's the hope for all of us. Jesus loved, came into the world and loved me without loving my sin. Jesus was a friend of sinners, it said, but he wasn't a friend to sin. He lived in the world without being tainted by the things in the world. And then he died a death that all the desires of the world merited, the the pride of life, the, the lust of the flesh and the eyes. He died the very death that all of our collective poison merited, deserved. He died that death. That, uh, think about all the things in the world that make you angry. All the, the things that are tweeted. The ugly things that you've seen on Facebook. First of all, it's your fault too. Second, it's been paid for by Jesus alone. He took all that ugly on himself on a cross on a very certain Friday afternoon. In that same weekend on a Sunday morning, he rose up from the dead after dying the death that you and I should have died. And because he rose again, he can, he can confer his life to us. If we would trade our death, our lust of the flesh and eyes and the pride of life, once and for all and yet daily over again, if we would trade it for his life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, help us to trade, to to trade our earthly desires for a greater desire. And help us right now by your spirit to apply that functionally now. Amen. Can you stand to your feet with me? We're going to apply this in song. I want to sing a song together, and it's going to be a declaration of faith. We're literally saying... I, tra- I desire you, God, more than all those other desires. If you're here and you've never declared that God is more important by faith, you've never declared by faith, God, you're my greatest desire. Change my life. Make me new. You can become born again right now simply by, sa- by believing upon Jesus.